0: Father, I would uh, just simply lift up to you the nation in which we live that the biggest thing that would reign at this time would be truth. That we would not be getting misinformation or disinformation but we'd be able to sift through all the forms of media to know what is right, what is good, what is just, what is true. And we desire the same thing from your word. And we know that you have provided it in written form. But I would ask that you would write it on our hearts. That it would be a people who are full of discernment. Knowing the days in which we live. That we might walk according to your statutes. That we may live according to your ways. And as Paul writes this final letter of his life. I pray that we would take it to heart. In Jesus' name, amen. This is, in fact, considered the final letter in the life of Paul. They believe it was written somewhere around 67 A.D., and that is the same year of his death. There are some that hold to a tradition that they actually know the day of his death, which was June 29, 67 A.D. We don't know if that is exactly the case or not. But if you were like the Apostle Paul and he was beheaded for his faith, what would you tell those, if you know that you had weeks or even a couple of months left, what would you say to those who are around you that you really cared about? What kind of information would you give them, especially those who had looked to you for direction and information and just life lessons? What would you say? You would probably say something like, don't be afraid, don't worry, things are going to be fine, and you have what you need to carry on, everything has been prepared for you, Lord willing, that's the case, and we'll see each other again soon, and it will be a blessing to us both. If you're a believer, that's probably something like the outline of what you would say, along with, I love you, and you would say, I wish I would have loved you more, things like that. And in the particular case here that Paul is talking to Timothy, he gives him one final exhortation. Continue to work for the Lord. And that would be one in a believing family that you would pass on to those who you loved. And Paul demonstrates these things in certain verses. And I'm going to have you just flip to these verses. These are the key verses for 2 Timothy. They go all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 4. The first one is 2 Timothy chapter 1 in verse seven. And he tells Timothy, basically, do not be afraid for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a a spirit of power of love and self-discipline. So we know that Timothy was rather timid and he said, don't, don't worry about that. Don't be concerned about that. You just go forward. It's the spirit of God that works in you. Then he tells him, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 basically says you have what you need to carry on. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You have everything you need in the scripture, Timothy. As a pastor, you're able to perform all the duties that are under your ministry. And then, as I said before, being an apostle to Timothy, and Timothy being a pastor, he gives him this exhortation in 2 Timothy four two: Preach the word, be prepared in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So continue to work for the Lord. And then the final one, 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness with which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And this is where we'll see each other again and it will be soon and it will be a blessing to us both for those who are in the Lord. So this is what Paul decided to tell Timothy and he knew that his death was imminent. It was right around the corner. So, It was the Apostle Paul who was instrumental in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ over much of the ancient world. He probably uh, traveled 10,000 miles and established, it would appear, at least 14 churches. Now, he could have established more. We just don't have that information with us. And if it wasn't for Paul, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. It was Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the apostles. They were in Jerusalem. They said that we're going to minister to those who are under the law, but it was Paul who went out. Now it is believed Thomas went towards India and Paul went on three missionary journeys that we know of recorded in the scriptures around the area of Turkey and up to Troas and uh, Greece and up in that area. And even in Romans chapter 15, it says that maybe he went all the way over to Spain and that would have been quite a feat in his life, to be a witness for Jesus Christ. I mean, he was just completely sold out. And Paul had a concern for the churches and in particular for Timothy, and he wanted to encourage Timothy and all believers to persevere in the faith, proclaim the gospel, remain passionate for Christ, be faithful in keeping sound doctrine, avoid ungodly beliefs and practices, flee immorality, Persecution is on the horizon. He wanted them to know that. And some will apostatize from the faith. And we were all to keep their eyes, or they were all to keep their eyes on the prize. And so that's the instruction he gives in the whole of Second Timothy. But he mentions over 26 people in this small letter. And these people are Lois and Eunice, the grandmother and mother of Timothy, then there were those who deserted Paul. Uh, it was Hermogenes and Phygelus. I think that's how you pronounce his name, and Demas. That he deserted and gone to Thessalonica, just took off. And then there was one who refreshed Paul. That was Anisiphorus. And the forerunners, of course, he talked about Jesus and David and how they were faithful to God. And then there were those who abandoned the faith, Hymenaeus and Philetus, and, of course, the two magicians that he talks about there, Janus and Jambres, those are the ones who, it is believed, oppose Moses in the Old Testament. And then he mentions the faithful. There's Crescens, Titus, Luke, Mark, Tychicus, Carpus, Priscilla, Aquila, Onesiphorus that I've already mentioned, Erasmus, Erastus, Trifemus, Eubulus, uh, Prudence, Linus, and Claudia. And he says, you know, all these people, they're working, and this is what they're doing, and receive them, and it's good. But he mentions several different people, some to be weary of, to uh, make sure that you point out the errors of these people, just as Paul does. And then there are those who are the faithful. So in verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience as night and day. I constantly remember you in my prayer. So there, there's a lot here. We know that Paul is an apostle. We've gone over that in past messages. According to To the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, and it is by the will of God. And I've mentioned to you before that we are also believers according to the will of God and according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And he calls Timothy his son, which he wasn't his actual son, but that's how close he was to Timothy. He calls him a dear son, they had an affection between them that was like a father and son relationship, grace, mercy, and peace and those come in that order, as I have previously mentioned in other epistles. We get the grace of God, we don't are not judged according to our sins, and when that happens, we have the peace of God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, and he thanks God, and we're always to thank God in all circumstances who he serves, as his forefathers did with a clear conscience night and day, and I constantly remember you in my prayers. So he refers back to his forefathers that he paid attention to, and then he's going to make reference to Timothy and how he was taught up or brought up by his grandmother and mother. He says in verse 4, Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. And this is probably in reference to prophecies that were made by Paul that he knew he was going to uh, go and he was going to be bound. There was a prophecy made about him that he would be bound and it would probably be the end of his life. And they were uh, trying to encourage him, Do not do this. Do not go. And he said, No, And I need to do this. I need to go and be a witness for Christ. And this is probably out of Acts chapter 20, verse 36, where this occurred. Uh, it reads there, when he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed, and they all wept, and uh, as they embraced him and kissed him, what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they had accompanied him to the ship. And so God had told them that his time was drawing near. Uh, verse 5, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and i'm persuaded now lives in you also. And so he had a gener he was third generation believer is who he was. Now think back in your own life. Your grandparents were they believers? Your parents were they believers? Did they hold to the faith were both of them believers or maybe one of them believers? I had a tradition or There's a tradition in my family. My grandmother on my father's side was a Baptist and my grandmother on my mother's side was more Oral Roberts, more of a uh, uh, holiness type uh, tradition that she had. And so I can remember both of my grandmothers. I remember uh, my mom's mother, that we actually went to her church. They had me play the piano there. I failed miserably, playing Born Free at about age 8 or 10. You know, she thought it would be great to have me up there and totally blew it. But there was this church that we went to, and she was very involved in the church, and she had her Bible, and when you went to her house, she had that Bible there and she would go to Oral Roberts tent meetings and, and she would go to a variety of churches, but that was kind of her bent. And then my other grandmother on my father's side, we called her mom. Uh, she wouldn't wear dresses because, um, woman is not to be found in the attire of a man. She never wore pants her entire life as she smoked her Salem cigarettes and read the Bible and listened to Dr. J. Verna McGee, uh, you know, and, and and that's what she did. And I remember all of that. And uh, both of them, one lived to be over 100. I think she was 101. And the other one died early when I was in ninth grade. But I just remember their faith and we really weren't a family of faith. We went for a little while, maybe till I was about five years old, we went to church. And then it wasn't until I got saved that I actually went back to church. And I was about 20 years old at that particular point. So there's a, a generation, I'm sure that they were praying for me. And my aunt, she married a guy who was also a Baptist pastor back in Oklahoma. His name was Jess. And, you know, that, that comes from a, a rich tradition back there. And I'm sure that they prayed for us at some particular time uh, to be filled with the Spirit of God to be saved. And that's what we're supposed to do for the next generation, that we pray for them to be saved, that they wouldn't be lost to the ways of the world. And so he goes on in verse five says, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois and your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. So he was carrying this testimony on. It simply didn't end with Lois or Eunice. And for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame or kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, each one of us have a gift. I've talked about the gift before when we went through 1 Corinthians. They are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14. We know that it's also in the book of Romans and also in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. It lists all the gifts, and I'll go through those in a minute. But we have these gifts, and we're to fan them into flame, kindle afresh. It's this idea of when you start a fire the fire starts to go down and then you decide you're going to take a piece of cardboard or something and you're going to fan it into flame or you're going to blow on the fire and it starts kindling again and it gets hot and these little flames start coming up. And that's what Paul's referring to, kindle afresh, move around the coals, get that thing hot and get it flowing again. And there's a tendency for us to just kick back a little bit where we don't keep on moving so quickly especially as we get older we slow down and the same thing is true spiritually we want to have a tendency to slow down it's time for somebody else who's younger to pick up the mantle and that may be true but god never tells us slow down in your faith here's paul telling timothy pick it up put it in third gear maybe fourth gear overdrive whatever you need to do just start taking off again. Fan that gift that you have into flame. And so Paul is making a comparison. I digress a little bit. He's making a comparison between what his forefathers did and how he was raised up in the faith. And then what Timothy had happened to him with Lois and Eunice, it's passing on the godly heritage. And so how would someone be persuaded that an individual has a sincere faith? Because this is what Paul said about Timothy, you have a sincere faith. Now, what is sincere? I think that there's a lot of 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old young males who are not sincere. I would say they are not sincere when they say certain things to young ladies, 16, 17, 18, and 19 years old, and I think most of the ladies... Or Some believe it wholeheartedly, some are a little skeptical, but they just want the attention of the females, and so they will be as insincere as necessary uh, to get what they want. They are feigning their sincerity, there's probably a little bit of hypocrisy in there, they're not being genuine, and we know if we look at the Old Testament, sincere relationship that was there, there are several, Uh, David and Jonathan. Or the Song of Solomon. Those were sincere relationships. And synonyms for being sincere are candid, genuine, outspoken, true, above board, bona fide, dear, frank, honest to God, natural, earnest, heartfelt, real, trustworthy, actual, dead level, devout, guileless, Like it is, no fooling, forthright, serious, artless, faithful, and meant. All of those words are synonyms for having a sincere faith. Antonyms for sincerity are counterfeit, devious, false, insincere, unreal, untrustworthy, deceitful, dishonest, flippant, invalid, unimportant, unserious, and tricky. Now, you evaluate for yourself, what is your faith like? Is it flippant or is it serious? Is it unimportant or is it true and outspoken and genuine? That's what God wants us to do if we have a sincere faith and we're fanning it into flames. He wants all these characteristics to be in our lives. Elders and deacons are supposed to be sincere in their faith. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 says deacons likewise to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. So sincerity is something that is big. But people can be sincere and sincerely wrong. Imagine that. They, they believe something wholeheartedly and they think what they're doing is right. I recently saw this little video of a teacher. Maybe you saw it on the news. A teacher that was... Openly in the classroom teaching Marxism. And he talked about it, how he loved doing it. He thought he was being interviewed by somebody who was interested and did not turn out to be the case. Of course, to the parents, he wouldn't let them know anything, but he was trying to indoctrinate the kids. And he says, you know, I hang an Antifa flag on my wall in my house because I'm against fascism. If you know anything about Antifa, they are fascists. And he was sincere in thinking he's against fascism, but he's holding up the, it might as well have been the Nazi flag that he was holding up. That's what he was being sincere about, but he was sincerely mistaken about what Antifa is all about. And then there are the great philosophers which are out there. You know who Charles M. Schultz was Charlie Brown, this is what he said. It doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere. You can believe that there are purple monsters that crawl out of the ocean every night. You might be sincere in that, but you're sincerely wrong if that is the case. And then Charles Spurgeon, he says, sincerity makes the very least person to be of more value than the most talented hypocrite. And so that sincerity is very necessary when it comes to your faith. Now, I'm going to give you a few points here, five points about having a sincere faith. They are a sincere faith is rooted in the truth. A sincere faith is motivated by love. A sincere faith is a faith that is genuine. A sincere faith is a faith that is alive. A sincere faith is a faith that overflows. So the first one, a sincere faith that is rooted in truth. We know there's this uh, young man, this was written in bits and pieces back in the 90s, a little story here I want to tell you. It is rooted in truth, remember that. Here's the story. To please his father, a freshman went out for track. He had no athletic ability, though the father had been a good miler in his day. His first race was a two-man race in which he ran against the school miler. He was badly beaten. Not wanting to disappoint his father, the boy wrote home as follows. You'll be happy to know that I ran against Bill Williams, the best miler in school. He came in next to last while I came in second. And if you Pay attention to what he's saying there. He's, he's not letting his father know that he lost the race. He's, I did good. I came in second. And the, the guy who's the miler, he came in next to last. Well, but he came in first and he lost to him. So he's, he's trying to change around the word. This is definitely being insincere. He's not communicating the whole truth out there. And there are pastors. Now I come from a tradition where the pastors they have a tendency to speak the truth and they get in trouble uh, for speaking the truth and that's the Calvary Chapel tradition and there are other traditions that they kind of dance around the truth they don't want to say things truthfully or forthright or sincerely and they, they want to make it seem like it's not quite as bad as it might be and there was a a study that was done. And a few pastors preach about today's most challenging political and social issues because they worry about losing members of their flock and the money they donate according to researchers who focuses on issues of Christianity. People are worried that others will just leave if they're too forthright. I've told you before the two major... Subjects that are almost verboten or taboo in the church are homosexuality and abortion. And by the way, you saw what happened in Texas. Uh, Texas, that heartbeat bill and people's hair is on fire and they just can't believe it. And there's, they're taking up arms. And and uh, DeSantis in Florida said, we're going to consider taking up that bill ourselves. And there's going to be a movement which will lead to a judgment by the Supreme Court. And that's what they're hoping will happen where they will finally say that, look, especially in the Roberts court, I believe that what is going to happen is uh, Justice Roberts doesn't want to make huge swinging vote changes. And so what he'll probably do is say, take it back to the states. And when it goes back to the states, each individual state will decide what to do and Roe versus Wade will probably go down to defeat. And I've listened to law scholars on this. That was probably one of the worst legal decisions that was ever made Besides a couple of others, uh, that's right up there at the top that was made by the Supreme Court. And so controversy keeps people from being in the seats and they don't like to hear bad news. And if they hear the bad news, they won't come and then they won't be giving money to the programs that are in the church. And this George Barna, he has written about 50 books. I think maybe you're familiar with one, The Frog and the Kettle. And that's about uh, the, the story about the frog. You can put a frog in a pot of water that's boiling and the frog will immediately jump out. and It's too hot, but if you put a frog in a, a, a pan of water that is just tepid, it's not very cold, not very warm, he'll just sit there. And then if you turn up the flame, you can boil that frog and he'll never jump out. He'll die while being in there. He just becomes numb to it. He just slowly succumbs. Well, that's one of the books I I remember originally reading about him, but he's the author of over 50 books about matters of faith and culture. And his research shows, this was hard for me to believe, that fewer than 10% of pastors talk about political, social, and cultural issues from the pulpit. They don't do that. Now, I, I don't know who he polled, but like I said, in our particular tradition, That's usually not the case. It's more like 90, 95% of the pastors, they talk about all of these issues. And then one particular reverend, Angela Dinehart Hancock, she is an assistant professor at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary in East Liberty. Uh, She says a 20 to 30 minute monologue is not the best way to foster rich, gracious conversation in congregations. And that's why... These controversial subjects are not brought up. Such conversation is ideally suited for adult forums or ministry groups. In other words, you don't want to tell the whole church, just get people who are willing to talk about these things and won't be too offended by them and we can go through them. When Bible, we're supposed to give the Bible to everyone and everything that is in there. These pastors all agree that 90% of these problems in society with our culture and politics, they're all addressed in the scriptures. But they won't uh, deal with these. Another guy by the name of Ron Moore, senior pastor at the Bible Church in Peters, was surprised by Barna's findings. He said, last year, one of the church sermons was called Family Under Attack. It discussed topics including homosexuality, divorce, and couples living together out of wedlock. Moore recalled one churchgoer being disappointed with the series. He says, she told me, I was just looking for a happy Bible lesson. And if that's what you're looking for in Scripture, that's the wrong thing to look for. That's not the whole of the Bible. I mean, if you look at the theme of the Bible... The theme of the Bible is to glorify God, the state of humankind, mankind. We are sinful. We are under a curse. We are all destined for hell, but there's good news we can get out of that. Now, if the people don't choose the good news, don't choose the sacrifice of Christ, then they are still under judgment and still destined for eternity in hell. And that's not a happy message. But the message that's happy is you can avoid all of that, but people don't want to hear the first part. You can't preach the gospel without preaching the cross. You, you cannot talk about glorification unless you talk about damnation. What's the purpose? Because we all exist somewhere we do not cease to exist. And, and so most of the people, they don't want to hear about the controversial subjects. They get upset by it, and it, it just grates on our flesh in the wrong way. And we want to please our flesh. And so we're not willing to have the fear of the Lord, which is humility, and agree with God and say, you know, God, these things are correct. These things are good, and we need to listen to these. And we know that you're going to deliver us in the future from all of these problems, all of these issues. But until then, help us to communicate it to everyone else, which is out there. Now, also, this idea that we have a sincere faith which is rooted in truth. We are sanctified by truth. John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus told us that. And God couldn't find those who were interested in truth in Israel during the time of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 5, 1 says, go up and down the streets of Jerusalem, look around and consider, search through her squares if you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth i will forgive the city our culture is in the same boat right now if you want to find truth there are people who are suppressing the truth by their wickedness that's romans chapter one and they don't want anything further to do with the truth and we are sanctified by the truth and our culture is uninterested in what the truth is. And we are to gird our waist with truth. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Someone who is prepared for battle girds their waist. That's the context of Ephesians chapter 6 verse 14. <coughs> if you are girding your, your waist with the belt of truth, you're ready for action. You don't want any loose clothing hanging down. You, you take that tunic, which is on the outside, and you build it up around your waist, and you buckle it up, and you pull your sword out, and you're ready to go. And then speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 says instead, speak the truth in love, and we will all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. And so we don't have to beat people over the head, and I've seen that so much. Where some people, they, they're called Bible thumpers they go out there and they they thump people with the truth. And people hate the truth as it is. I I saw one of these um, pro-life anti-abortion protests, uh, a video of it, and they're talking to the people which are out there. And there's two guys standing next to each other. There's one guy standing and somebody is on his left. And this guy's a bigger guy. He looks like about six foot four. A guy's standing on his left and he's talking to someone who the back of his head is towards the camera. And this guy is arguing with this individual who is on the left of the tall guy. And he's, he's kind of leaning forward and you can tell he's just kind of screaming at him. And all of a sudden, the guy with the head to the back of the camera, he has a backpack on and a hat on, You can see him start to rear back with his fist, and he's going forward to punch the guy in the face. And the guy who is on the right, he sees it coming, and he's big, and he reaches out his hand and grabs his fist and stops it and says, No, no, like that to him. And you know, so the the people, they hate to hear the truth. They don't want to hear the truth, they want to block their ears. They want that they what they want, and that is the world. The world is satisfied with the way it is and doesn't want to hear what the truth is. And then there is secondly, a sincere faith is motivated by love. Romans chapter twelve verse nine: Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to the good. In First Timothy one five, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So that's why we do anything that we do for the Lord is because we have a love for those people which are around us. Our natural bent, our default setting is not to love those who are around us. We want to hate those who are around us. We want to covet what those around us have. We want to speak evil of what those people are doing we want to be jealous we want to be envious of those who are around us and if we have christ we're to take that old nature put it to the side and love like christ loved us now jesus in his human form had every right to be dissatisfied and not like the people who are around him but because he is God he had that unending love so number three a sincere faith is a faith that is genuine I got this from gotquestions.com I like that website I think uh, they do a pretty good job on dealing with controversial issues they have most questions addressed on that particular website if you have a question you could probably go there type it in And you could come up with it. But God questions, there was a question, what are some of the signs of a genuine saving faith? And they listed 12 things that are a sign of a genuine saving faith. First one, do you enjoy having fellowship with Christ and his redeemed people? Or do you go to church and go, you again? Is that what you do? Or You think, you know, those people. In the, I don't know if I can handle them. Yeah, I love fellowshipping with Christ. That's good. I, I like the prayer and I like worship music, but you know, his people leave a little bit to be desired. Is that what you do to you? And the answer should be yes. If you have a genuine faith, you love fellowshipping with Christ and his redeemed people. Secondly, would people say you walk in the light or you walk in darkness? Those who look at you, would they say, oh yeah, definitely a believer. You'd be convicted in a court of law. There's no question about it, It carries around his Bible, talks about Jesus Christ, witnesses to people, or do you come to church on Sunday and then you exit and that's all anybody ever sees of you? Are you not pursuing your faith, but you're pursuing things of the world? And so if you have a sincere or genuine faith, people would say that you walk in the light and not in the darkness. Thirdly, do you admit and confess your sin? We know First John one nine tells us that if we do, he forgives us of our sin. But do you go around and say, well, I'm not such a bad person? Well, no, Christ would say otherwise you are utterly harmful to yourself and all who are around you. And so if you readily confess your sin, then you have a sincere faith. Are you obedient to God's word? Ooh, that's a tough one. Who in here has been 100% obedient to God's word? None of us. I mean, do we strive? Well, yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to battle the flesh or buffet the flesh like the Apostle Paul and the King James would say. If we're obedient to God's word, then or at least we do our best to be obedient to God's word, then we are uh, possessing a sincere faith. Does your life indicate you love God rather than the world? Are you willing to forsake the things of the world or do you gather the things of the world around you? Is your life characterized by doing what is right? So many times I've listened to people, commentators, school boards, uh, meetings, it's the right thing to do. You know who is famous for that? That was Obama. He said that it's the right thing to do is what he'd always say. Well, how do you judge what the right thing to do unless you have the moral law of God, which is uh, um, enunciated and iterated in the scriptures? If you don't have that, you don't know what the right thing to do is. So do you live your life according to the right thing to do that is spelled out in Scripture? Do you seek to maintain a pure life, which is very difficult in this world? All the temptations which are out there, they start pulling on us. Do you seek to maintain that pure life? If you do, you have a sincere faith. Do you see a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? And note that this does not refer to continuing in a sin as a way of life, or it does can, uh, refer to... Uh, continuing in sin is a way of life as opposed to the absence of sin because everybody who becomes a believer is still going to sin and we have an advocate with the father he knows the state in which we are in we still walk around with this dead body this old nature with us but is there a decreasing pattern of sin in your life that should be demonstrated and do you demonstrate love for other christians And that wouldn't be obvious that you love those fellow believers. Do you walk the walk versus just talking the talk? Do you do what the scripture has to say? Do you forsake the gathering gathering together of the brethren as is the habit of some? Do you put away all coarse jesting and filthy language? Uh, Do you worship God? And also, number 11, do you maintain a clear conscience? In other words... If you sin, do you immediately go to God and say, God, will you please forgive me of this? And you have him renew your mind by the washing of the word. And the last one, do you experience victory in your Christian walk? There may be years where you experience no victory whatsoever, but you're still on the path. You're still going to the destination. If you guys remember the story uh, by Mr. Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, maybe you've read that, maybe you have... Uh, gone through its pages. I used to read a book like that to my kids that was full of color and pictures. And there was Christian who was there and he had this huge burden on his back and he would carry it around. If you've ever been backpacking and you have to go up a mountain, you have this narrow path that you are on and you're carrying this burden which is back there. And And when you get to the cross, that burden just falls off. Are you experiencing that victorious Christian life where that just pulls off your back or do you go i gotta put this back on and you reach down and you you stick it back on and you you start carrying it with you again god says no you should have victory in your christian walk and and so those are things that demonstrate a sincere faith or if it is genuine now a sincere faith is a faith that is alive and this is where paul told timothy to fan the flame on in his particular gift. And 1 Timothy 6.12 says, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so you are active, you are alive, you are reaching forward, you are paying attention to what the Christian church and the pastors and the articles and the news which is out there concerning your faith. And then a sincere faith that overflows, uh, you will have an effect on others. You should always have somebody that you're looking to for wisdom and insight. Now, it can be several different individuals. That's good, but there should always be somebody there. But then there should always be somebody that you're working on. And you're working on them to get them to see the light, to get them to understand Jesus Christ. If there's nobody like that in your life, you need to go on a hunt. You need to look out, okay, who is there that I know that is not saved that needs the gospel? It's not your job to reel in the whole fish. It's your job just to throw the bait out there. And it's God. He goes, okay, give me the pole. This one's going to be tough. And he takes it. We're just to cast out. The, the bait, which is out there, we're to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not responsible for the number of fish that come in the boat. It's God that does that. He's the one that makes the change. And so a sincere faith, it overflows. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, it says, for just as the suffering of Christ overflows into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. And so we've had comfort from Christ and our comfort overflows to others. And that's what we're supposed to do. So a sincere faith is rooted in truth. A sincere faith is motivated by love. A sincere faith is a faith that is genuine. A sincere faith is a faith that is alive. A sincere faith is a faith that overflows. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame, verse 6, the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And one of these gifts, and remember I told you, each one of us has at least one gift. 1 Corinthians 12, I'm just going to list them off for you. There is the gift of wisdom Knowledge, faith, healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, tongues, the interpretations of tongues, Romans 12. There is serving and also prophesying. There is teaching. There is encouraging. There is a gift of giving. There is leadership. And there is the gift of administration and also mercy. All of those things are gifts you have at least one of those particular gifts. You may have the gift of pastor teacher. I don't think anybody is an apostle today and prophet. If somebody said they're a prophet, that's a dubious title, and, or maybe you're an evangelist. Some people uh, believe that the gift of prophet is no longer around. Uh, I know that there's two prophets coming in the future for us, and I don't see anywhere where the prophet the office of a prophet has gone away and it's coming back and, and so I, if you're a prophet okay prove it mr prophet is what i would say just like the apostle the apostle things that follow an apostle signs wonders and miracles what was the last miracle anybody raised from the dead in your family lately you know something like that that's what i would say and so I hold apostle, no. Prophet, you're going to have to prove it. Evangelist, no question about it. Pastor and teacher, no question about it. Those things still exist. So you have at least one of those gifts which one it is? I want you to go home today and think how you're going to fan that thing just raging fire and people come around you and go, whoa, what, what is going on there? Not so hot that it singes everybody around you but hot enough to where it's warm and they want to come around and get some comfort from that warmth that you are putting off. And so I'm going to close this part of it out right here before we receive communion. I just want to encourage you guys when it comes to a sincere faith People should be able to convict you of being a Christian. There should be no doubt in somebody's mind that you follow Jesus Christ. Whenever you get a chance to be a witness, first, just by your example, you shouldn't have to say anything. One of the first things that I noticed um, in my life, and God was gracious to me, uh, to help me to get rid of foul language. I grew up in a household of four boys. My dad was a Marine. I hung around other guys. That, oh, it was just it was horrible. Just a, a terrible environment. And God enabled me to get rid of that. And it was great that that went away. And there was one particular time I was on a job and I was using a 23-ounce framing hammer. And as I grabbed the hammer... And I was hammering into a form. I missed the nail and tore off my own. And when I did, I I looked at it. I didn't scream. And the guys around me were looking at me. And they were watching my reaction. And I had been a believer for about a year or so. And all I did, I, I grabbed my thumb And I just hunkered down and just breathe, Bill. Just breathe, you know, is what I needed to do. And and blood is flowing over my knuckles and everything else. I'm oh, you know, get me some electric tape, and you just tape that thing up in there. And and I didn't say anything during that time. And one of the guys, his name was Fred. Fred came up to me. He goes, "Wow, you really must be a believer. You didn't even cuss." And I. You know, and I thought, wow, well, that's great. That's great that he saw that. And he became a believer. He started following Jesus Christ because I sacrificed my thumbnail on that. And, and so somebody needs to look at you and the way that you act. There was another time I was on a ski trip and I was single at the time and I took my Bible with me and I would go off And, and by the way, as I say these things, I'm I'm not pointing as me as a good example. It's just what Christ does through us. And so I, I would take my Bible. I wanted to read it on the ski trip and I was with a whole family that was unsaved. And, and so I went and I would go in this little room and I would read the Bible and I'd come out and this one woman who was there, she was probably in her late 20s, she goes, Look at him, Mr. Saint. He even goes and reads the Bible. What's going on? And it was like, yeah, I read the Bible. And so they asked me a few questions about that, and I was able to be a witness. And so you also have these instances where you can be a witness. If you just live your life for Christ, it will just happen by default. You don't have to go out there and be insincere. Let me read the Bible in the mall. Maybe somebody will talk to me. No, just as you live your life, this will happen to you that you are a witness. And if you do that, you will be influencing somebody. You may be responsible for bringing somebody into the kingdom and having eternal life. If you just say, God, use me in this. It's his desire to do so, and he will. So as God gives you the desire in your heart, may you be able to follow through with that. May you be able to die to the flesh because these things are contrary to the Spirit. And the world and the flesh are contrary to the things of God that would keep you from doing this. So what we're going to do at this time is Kim's going to come forward. She's going to play a song. And then as she's playing the song, the routine, I think you guys know the routine. You come into the center. You pick up a communion cup with the bread in the upper chamber of that little cup and you go back around the outside and you sit down and it's good time to confess to the Lord your sins and ask him to use you ask you to be a witness and once we all have our uh, cups of communion we'll participate in receiving that together so as Kim begins to play if we can turn down the lights in the middle uh, you can pray to the Lord during this time